Welcome back to this week's episode of the Lady Landlord Podcast. I am your host, Becky Nova, and today we are introducing you to an amazing CPA tax strategist that's going to help all of us real estate investors out there. So please welcome Amanda Hahn to our episode today. Amanda, how are you doing? I am really well, and I'm excited to be here, Becky. Thank you so much. I appreciate, especially now in the early parts of 2024, that you're giving us your time. I know this is absolutely your busy season. And this is what we have 40,000 women talking about in our Lady Landlords community right now is all about taxes and getting ready for that big day in just a few short months. So I really appreciate you giving us your time today to talk about what we should be prepared for. But I would love if you could just take a second and introduce yourself to our listeners today. So please, I'll hand it over to you and go ahead. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here to kind of share this boring topic about taxes. I actually am a boy mom. So I have two kids, both really, really into sports. So there's busy season in taxes, and then there's this busy season in life. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I think my kids are at the age where it's super, super busy with just like sports and all kinds of stuff. And so people are just asking me, like, what's your passion? What are you passionate about? What are your hobbies? I'm like, you know, I think like most of our listeners, like, I, I don't have time for hobbies, you know? <laughs> There's just so much I do with respect to like being a mom, being a wife, being an investor, being an entrepreneur. To be honest, my hobbies are eating and sleeping in that order. Whenever I can get a good meal in by myself, where I'm not, you know, finagling or feeding other kids, when I can sleep by myself in peace, that's really what I'm passionate about right now <laughs> in life. What does good food mean to you? What would be that meal that you would have that you're like, this is it. This is indulgent for me. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. You know, I think unlike most people who really enjoy like fancy food, my favorite kind of food is actually like hole in the wall. Wherever I go, where, whenever I travel, I'm always looking for like that hole in the wall place where all the locals really love. I don't know why it's kind of brought up that way. I'm most comfortable in those areas. And also, I just really find that type of food typically to be the most tasty. Of course, typically probably not the most healthy, right? <laughs> but I'm sure it's really, really good. And then you mentioned your boys play sports. I know that's also seasonal. What sports do your do your children play? What do they not play, I think is the question. <laughs> my husband is really big into sports. So he coaches all the different sports. And so my kids are as a result, sign up for all kinds of things. And, and you're right, it's seasonal. So right now in tax season is typically baseball season and baseball okay. takes up a ton of time in terms of like practices and games and all that stuff. But yeah, I think my kids are involved in pretty much all kinds of sports, basketball, baseball, soccer, trying to get them into what's that water polo, but that's oh, my cool. the latest kick. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. That's another one. Right, because then you kind of end up becoming chauffeur and with everything else that you have to do. And then also cheerleader and all those other things. So, but beyond that, you have an amazing career, especially what you built being a CPA and a tax strategist. Was this something that you always wanted to get into or how did you end up in that space? So the answer is yes and no. Yes, I always wanted to be an accountant, which is really weird for people to hear. But my mom was an accountant and uh, my uncle was an accountant. So I grew up around accountants. And I'm actually the third generation of business owners and real estate investors in my family. So my grandparents 
who I grew up, I was really close to growing up. They were entrepreneurs and they were real estate investors. And then my parents were business owners. They dabbled in real estate. But even though I grew up in that environment, I was actually always taught to go to a good school, get a good degree, get a stable job. And so what job is more stable than accounting? Right? Everybody needs accounting. Everybody needs taxes done. But I think because my upbringing was always around entrepreneurs in my family, I sort of always mm. in me. So once I realized I was going to invest in real estate mm-hmm. uh, from a wealth building perspective, there was sort of a natural transition when I just said, you know what, I'm going to specialize and have my own company where I help investors save on taxes. Which part kind of interested you more growing up, going into accounting or purchasing real estate? To be honest, I hated real estate. I never wanted to be a real estate investor. So to give you some background on this, my grandparents were real estate investors. So they were uh, from China. They immigrated to the U.S. Like I think like a lot of immigrants, right? That like owning real estate was like a really big deal. It's really, uh, you know, in other countries. The American dream. Couldn't own real estate. Yeah. But my grandparents were like kind of what you typically think about when you think of landlords, where like where I grew up was in the same condo community where my grandparents were the landlords. So I was like the landlord's grandkids when we played with the neighborhood kids. And my grandpa would do all the turnovers himself. He self-managed everything. He was there to fix the toilets. He collected rent. So that's what I saw. Like I saw that very active, hands-on type of real estate investing. And I was like, that's not for me at all. I don't want to do a tenants. I don't want to do any of that. I want to get an office job as an accountant so I can have pretty nails and I could, you know, talk on the phone with clients all day. So so my passion was always initially in the accounting side and real estate became a byproduct of it because when I started mm-hmm. out my career, I was at one of the big four accounting firms and they happened to put me in their real estate specialty. So, so the real estate part was kind of by chance. Gotcha. But kind of really rounded out that experience and just the things that you were familiar with growing up. So it does seem like it was actually a natural fit. And then now, as you mentioned, even though growing up to be a lady landlord was not necessarily your goal, you actually are, right? You still ended up with a portfolio still as a side and another income stream to being a CPA. Yeah, it was really interesting was I never myself, I never put the two of them together, right? Like I said, I I was never interested in real estate. I actually didn't like it. It's not what I would have wanted to be a landlord and fixing toilets. And so when I first started working, in the accounting and public accounting, because it was one of the biggest uh, international firms, uh, a lot of my clients were the large developers and very high net worth individuals. And so my job was helping them to save on taxes. And it wasn't until many years later when I decided to look into real estate myself. And I was like, wow, you know, I remember now this client did XYZ and saved a lot in taxes. So how can I sort of do the same, but on a much smaller scale? That's really interesting. When you ended up kind of combining those and then ended up in that path, not only from what you were then doing personally, but now professionally, what's like the one thing that you're like, oh my God, I wish real estate investors knew X about taxes? Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's actually one of the reasons we started our firm, Keystone CPA. So at the time I was working for the big firms and, and when you're a high net worth individual, like to that level, you always had your team around you. So our clients were always calling us when they were making business decisions, when they were making investment decisions. So I just sort of assumed everybody operated that way. And so when I started looking to invest in real estate, I, I didn't know too much at all from the investment side. Right? I, did, I knew the numbers, but I didn't know like, where do I get a deal? How do I make an offer? 
So I started attending local real estate clubs, local meetups, and quickly I realized that like regular investors just didn't have exposure to that type of thought process. Like most of them didn't have a CPA or if they did, it was just like someone they talked to once a year. So people didn't really know there's this whole concept of planning and strategy on how to control your taxes. And that's sort of when my husband and I, uh, who, my husband was also a CPA with me in the firm. We were like, you know, it's it, we really should help everyday investors to kind of do the same, right? And just kind of make that available to people that are just not the super wealthy. What? We're not supposed to just talk to our accountants? One time a year, next time? What are you talking about, Amanda? I know it's so funny when I, I mean, when I say it, but I think even for a lot of people, even for some of our clients now who've never done planning before, it's just such a, a new concept, right? Because I mean, let's face it, taxes are boring and taxes are scary. So it's hard for regular people to be like, wow, I'm so interested in taxes. I should call my CPA. It's, it's definitely something you learn over time. Just knowing like who to call, when do I call them? What are the things that I should inform my tax advisor about? But if you think about it, the common complaint I hear when I meet investors is like, okay, I have some, some transactions happen. I sold a property or I bought a property, inherited a property last year. And then now it's April. I bring you all my taxes up and you tell me what taxes I owe right? Or how little my refund is. And I get really angry because I'm like, wow, why did this happen? How did this happen? You must not be doing your job. But the reality is if you're only meeting with your tax person in April to talk about last year's taxes, there's really not much you can do to strategize or save on taxes last year. They're basically just going to report what you did or didn't do on last year's return. Right. That's pretty much it, right? So if you think about planning, that is meeting with your tax person before you sell a property, before you buy a property, before you start paying your kids to help with the property and really think about what are some of the best ways to do it so you maximize the tax benefit legally. Now, there are so many different people within accounting in the sense of I can, I can actually just do my taxes by myself. Apparently, I never would, but apparently I can do them by myself. Apparently, there are storefronts like an HR block that I can go to to get them done. There are people that are purely tax preparers that can do taxes. Then there's accountants, you can your CPAs. What do I, as a real estate investor, who is the right person for me to really talk to that's going to give me kind of that year-round service? Yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, real estate is one of your main wealth building tools, the designation itself is not as important, right? So, of course, if you can afford a CPA, that's great. To CPAs, because we have the highest degree, usually CPAs will charge more, right? But if you right. can afford it, you can also work with like an enrolled agent who has taken classes and tests from the tax perspective. So they have that knowledge to help with tax filing and, and tax planning. So the designation itself is not as important as what they specialize in. So again, if you are someone in real estate, you want to work with someone who has a specialty in real estate. Um, I think a common question I get from people is like, well, how do I know, right? And the biggest mistake people make is when they interview CPAs, they'll say, do you work with real estate investors? So every CPA probably has at least one client who has at least one rental property or maybe their home they turn into a rental. Uh, and so, so the answer to that question is typically always yes. And then after you work with them, you come to find out maybe, you know, they're not really as well versed as you like them to be because you're doing a lot of more advanced transactions or you're doing creative financing. So I think it's really important for us if you're shopping for an advisor is to ask them, 
better questions. So instead of saying, do you do taxes for real estate investors? You could ask them even non-tax stuff like, hey, you know, what are some of your successful real estate clients doing in today's market, right? It's not even a tax question. It's just, what are your successful clients doing? And I love that question because not only do you get some good tips, right? You want to know what other investors are doing to make money, but you also get an idea on who that CPA thinks is a successful client. So if the response is, well, I have a client, Mary, who bought a single family home last year and makes some money, then you know that's sort of the upper edge of his expertise, right? Mary with the one property was his successful client. But if his story is like, well, my successful clients right now, they're doing large syndications, they got some multifamily stuff, then you have a better idea of what caliber of clients that they're typically working with. Right. But most real estate investors are probably more fall into that mom and pop kind of category. One to maybe three properties, you know, a handful here. Most real estate investors are not people that own hundreds of units and, and that type of thing. If I own one or two properties, do I need the expert top echelon real estate investor tax strategist that only works with, you know, billionaires that own hundreds of units? Or can I deal with somebody that says, hey, Mary, you know, bought a unit last year? Is that still then okay enough for me if I'm just a mom and pop with one or two units? Yeah, I think the answer to that depends on where you're trying to get to, right? Is we, I get that question a lot too. It's like, well, who is a good client for you? How much money do they have to make? Is it 500,000 a million? And what I tell people is for us, who's a good client for us is not dependent on how much money they make. So you could be someone making a million dollars of W-2, but you don't own any real estate. That's not a good client for me because there's no strategy I can help you with just on your client. But on the other hand, if you make $80,000 a year, but you own a couple of rental properties, then there's definitely things that we can look at to help you keep more of that 80000 of income that you've made. And for people who have lower income, it's even more important for them to save on taxes, right? Because that's more money that they can use to invest in and grow their wealth much faster. So to answer your question, you know, Mary has one rental property. If that's all Mary is going to have, Mary's not going to buy anymore, then maybe you don't need something super advanced, right? So maybe that local CPA that has a couple of investor clients would be sufficient. But if Mary is like, hey, I have one property, I'm looking to scale. I want to buy one or two per year in the next couple of years because I do want to retire off of real estate. Then you want to work with someone who has expertise in real estate because then they can help and advise you and they're doing so in the most tax efficient way. To me, that sounds very much very similar to the concept of being around the people that you want to become, right? So being around saying, I am building an empire, therefore I want to be using the tax strategist that works with others that also have that empire or saying, hey, I'm comfortable staying with somebody that understands how to really do two or three. That's where I have. That's the place that I really want to be at. And it's also okay to grow into different CPAs and grow as your goals and your strategy and, and our plans as investors also change. What would you say is the second best question I can ask an accountant that I am interviewing to see if they're fit to work together? Yeah. So I think two questions that are very important, right? One is, do you do tax planning? Because we just talked about all, all accountants do tax return filing. You can get that done mm -hmm. anywhere, but not very many people do tax planning. And just from an investor's perspective, again, it's really important to understand when you are meeting with your tax person in the next couple months, right? Between now and April, you're going to file your tax return. 
don't use that time to do tax planning. And I think for a lot of taxpayers, we assume like, hey, you're following my taxes for last year. I'm sure you're going to tell me what I should be doing better. But we know based on experience that that doesn't happen. Because for CPA, this time of the year, everyone is busy. You're just trying to get tax returns done. You might have 80 returns you're trying to finish in the next couple of days or couple of weeks. So that's not a good time to do planning. I always suggest you set up a second meeting with your tax person outside of tax season to really sit down and take the time to go through planning. So when you're interviewing, the question is, do you offer tax planning services? What's the cost? What does that look like? I mean, you want them to have a really good explanation of that process. Right? Again, not just, sure, we can do tax planning. What are your questions? That's right. the worst thing for someone to say, because what are your questions means I'm not going to give you anything. I expect you to tell me your question. I, I would be saying to be like, my question would be, so what should I ask about tax planning, right? Like how that's not my, that's not my expertise, that's not my world. So I love that you said that, Amanda, because that's really important that we need people that know the right questions to ask to get the information from us rather than us being like, so what should I do for tax planning? That's a really, really great point. <laughs> it's funny because I hear that all the time people say, yeah, my CP said they do tax planning. And then the, the follow-up is, well, what are your questions? And so I think from the investor's perspective, my question is, how do I pay less tax? Again, that's a very generic question. So CPA is like, well, I, don't, I don't know. Like, what are your other questions? And I think people are surprised to find out that when we do tax planning, even if the clients of the first meeting we, we have on the planning side, a lot of times people come to us with questions like, how do I write off my kids? How do I write off my home office? And we just say, oh, this is great. We'll cover this, you know, at some point today. But first, I need to get to know you. And so we have right. a list of questions that we go through with clients. And then we kind of dive down at the end into how do I pay my kid, right? Because that's one piece of the strategy, but we don't want to start there. We want to ask better questions so we get the overall picture in the strategy. So that's actually something, and I want to talk about this at a very high level, but that is one of the most popular topics that we have in Lady Landlords right now is that idea of, ooh, how can I pay my kid? And how does that help me from a tax advantage? So can you just talk very high level about why people put their kids on the books. Yeah, I mean, the concept. So in the tax world, we call it income shifting. Basically, how do I shift income from my tax return into other people's tax returns? And so although in our examples, we often use kids because that's sort of like low-hanging fruit. We all have kids. They cost a lot of money. But if they're in baseball and stuff like that. And now water um, polo. Is, no, no, hopefully not. <laughs> And so the, the question becomes, how do we write that off? How do, how do we make that an expense? And unfortunately, the law is that kid expenses are not legitimate deductions. Those are personal nature. And so the whole income shifting concept as well, instead of just giving money to my kids, how can I have them earn that income from me in my real estate business so that I get a legitimate tax deduction for the work that they're doing? And then once they've earned that money, they can use it to pay for movies, sports, whatever it is that they want to do. And so, so again, although we talk about kids, that actually applies to other people too that you might be helping out financially. We have a lot of clients who have aging parents who are retired or semi-retired that they're helping out financially. And so that's another great opportunity to say, okay, well, how can I shift income to my parents so that they can help out in my real estate and I get a tax deduction for the money that I was otherwise giving them anyways, but now I can write it. Right. But like, can I say, and I, I do not have children, and thank you, my husband's going to now listen to this episode and be like, see, this is why we need to have kids, Becky, a tax write-off. But like, you, but know, you have parents, parents, so you can do that. I do have parents. <laughs> Luckily, they're still both alive. But 
can I say like, hey, my six months old is out there now fixing my toilet so I can I can give him an income? Can I say my father who's retired and disabled is my property manager? Like what what jobs or constraints do I have about what work I can have them do? And the question that people are probably thinking that I'm just going to actually ask you, do I actually have to pay? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> you absolutely have to actually pay them and they actually have to do the work in terms of what you can pay them for. There's two requirements that the IRS needs. One is that the work that they do is something they're actually capable of. So can your six-month-old be your IT person? No. My my six-month-old be... probably can understand technology much better than I can as an older millennial. So that's actually that is going to be an accurate statement. But I see where you're going with that, Amanda. But yes, right. Like that's not somebody that, that we're going to really put on the books for a job that's not really going to qualify mm -hmm. them. Yes. Exactly. So what you're looking at is what are, what are some of the things that, that is appropriate for their age group that they can actually do and that they will actually do, right? That's first requirement. The okay. second requirement is the compensation itself has to be reasonable for whatever it is that they're doing. So in other words, if you're paying someone to help you clean out your rental property during a tenant turnover, I normally pay somebody else to do that is what I would also pay my kid or my nephew or my parents to do those same things. So just because I love my kids, if I typically pay somebody a couple hundred dollars to do deep cleaning, I'm not going to pay my kid a couple thousand dollars to do the same thing. So those are sort of like the major requirements. And, you know, can you pay your dad who's disabled to, to do stuff? It depends. Like, could another person with those same limitations manage your properties, right? It depends on what the disability is. But really, it has to be reasonable that, and they have to actually do the work. But if you think about it, you know, if you paid them $10,000 for the year, if it's your kids who don't have any other income, that $10,000 you pay them is not subject to income taxes on their end. It becomes mm -hmm. a $10,000 tax deduction for you. So if you're in the 30% tax bracket, that's the $3,000 tax savings on money you were already giving them anyways, right? But now you get a tax savings for it. Right. How do I have to document the job description, the payment for children, elderly parents, nephew, niece, those types of things? Yeah, the documentation is the same as if you hire any anyone else, right? So if you hired me or my kids, what is the documentation you'll have? For example, you'll have a job description. You and I will agree on what exactly I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how many hours it's going to take me. Are you paying me hourly? Are you paying me based on project? So same type of documentation as with any unrelated person. With respect to tax documentation, we really have two ways, right? Either as a W-2 or as a 1099 contractor. And that also will kind of default to what would you do with somebody else? So there's a lot of different rules around W-2 versus 1099. But at a high level, what we typically see is if the task itself is recurring in nature, right? Mm -hmm. Every week, every month, you're doing the same thing. Typically, that's going to be more W-2. If we're talking about project-based, like, oh, my 12-year-old is going to help me create some sort of, you know, social media campaign. They're just coming up with ideas and off I go to do it. Then those sometimes could be a 1099 because it's kind of a one and done type of a thing. So depends on the task gotcha. in terms of W-2 or 1099. How do investors use those? Do I have to give a 1099 to every contractor handyman that has come into my property? and done work over the years, my tenants pay me rent. 
Do I have to give them a 1099? Can they ask me for a W-9? What are these 1099s? And what do I have to do with them? Yeah, so, you know, if anyone asks you to issue them a 1099 uh, because you've paid them, you could certainly do it. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but I bet the facts are typically opposite. Uh, like you've hired a contractor <laughs> to help have a property. And then you're like, hey, I need your W-9 to do a 1099. And they're like, nope, no, no, thank you. You can't find me. So the, the whole concept of 1099 issuing, right, us as landlords issuing it, is because the IRS wants to make sure that recipient is paying taxes. So that's why there's all these rules about you needing to issue 1099s. So 1099s are typically required for anyone you pay over $600 during the year in total and that you pay them by check or by money transfer. So if you pay them typically by credit card, as an example, you don't have to worry about 1099s, but by check. And so if you paid somebody over that dollar amount, typically what we recommend is you get an assigned W-9 form from them. That form will basically tell you whether you need to issue a 1099 or not. So an example would be if you pay somebody, but they're actually a corporation, then you don't have to issue a 1099. You just keep a copy of that W-9 they sent you, and that's the end of the story. So the IRS said, hey, why didn't you issue this party a 1099? You can say, oh, here's a W-9, they're a corporation, I don't have to do it. So with respect to landlords, I always encourage, especially if you have big projects where you've hired people, get that W-9 form as part of the contract before you pay them. Right. Because after the fact, there's no incentive for them to give you any information, right? The job is already done. You mentioned money transfers in there. There's a lot of conversations about Cash App, Venmo, Zelle. But what if I pay my handyman through that? What if I pay my property manager through that? There's always this buzz about who's watching our Cash App and how we transfer money. Is that something that outside of that check that you mentioned to get that 1099, Cash App and these e-transfers that we do are so much more popular now. Are those things that we need to also think about 1099s or is nobody really watching? Yeah, so they actually changed the law in 2023. Prior to 2023, if you use any of those apps, Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, you don't have to issue 1099. But they changed the law in 2022. I believe any accounts that are linked to your bank account you still have to issue 1099. So it goes back to that banking concept. If you've linked your app to your bank, then they see that as the same as a bank transfer. So then they want 1099s. I mean, the reality is if you don't really want to issue 1099s, the cleanest way to do it is to pay through credit card, right? You also get points too when you charge things on your credit card. The only downside is, of course, not all contractors or recipients take credit cards. So that's the piece of it that is a little bit, you know, unknown. But what's really important, I think, for investors to understand is regardless of whether you issue a 1099 or not, you can still take the deduction on what you've paid your contractors, right? So maybe I paid Johnny $10,000. He won't give me a W-9. It doesn't mean I'm not going to write off that $10,000. I'm still going to expense it because I can prove I paid him and it was for whatever rehab property or you know marketing or whatever happens to be. The worst case scenario, like if Iris says, audits me later and says, hey, what's this deal with $10,000 paid to Johnny? I can prove I paid it, so I'm still going to write it off, but mm-hmm. I can't prove that I gave him a 1099. So IRS will typically, they'll just give you a warning and say, hey, in the future when you pay Johnny, you got to issue a 1099, right? Or they'll, maybe there's like a $200 penalty because you didn't issue it. And the worst case scenario is they could charge you some withholding taxes. If they're mm-hmm. very aggressive, they'll say, well, I assume Johnny didn't actually pay taxes on it. So I'm going to withhold some of the taxes on your end because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. 
I right. rarely see them go to that extent, though. Right. But that is, as business owners, as landlords, that is our responsibility to be able to issue those 1099s and to track and report our income appropriately. Is it appropriate for tenants to ask us as landlords for W-9s to then deduct their rent? I have not seen that, but it's possible. You got to come hang out and that landlords a lot more often. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends, right? So I think it, it, so if in, in a normal scenario, because we only have to issue 1099s when we're talking about business deductions, something right. you're going to write off. So if you're living in my apartment as your home, you're not writing that off anyway. There's no purpose in you getting a 1099. Now, for commercial property owners, of course, we said it all the time because that's rent expense. They're going to issue a 1090. They want to issue a 1090 because they're going to write that off as a business expense. So it kind of depends for residential versus commercial and how frequently we see it. But yeah, there's no issue at all. You know, people ask me for 1099s. If they hire me to do consulting or tax filing, they want to write it off. They ask us for 1099. There's no issues at all. Why? Because I'm paying my taxes on it, right? It's not like right. I'm not reporting it. So I don't, I don't mind. You know, you want a 1099, you want to issue it to me, great. That question just pops up always around this time of tenants looking for that from landlords. So I was so happy just to have our listeners hear that response from you of, nah, that's not a thing in residential. So thank you very much for really just kind of solidifying that. I have one other popular question that comes up in the Facebook group. But before I get to that question, I want to stick with what you were talking about with 1099s and deductions. Because all now, January through April, we get flooded in Lady Landlords with questions about what can I deduct? What else can I deduct in my taxes? April 16th through like end of May. Oh my God, I can't get approved for a loan. My DTI is too high. I'm told that I don't make enough to get a loan. Why is that, Amanda? I think it's the poor order of priorities, right? We're trying to put out the most immediate fire first. So <laughs> thinking about taxes, then we think about the loan because now we're trying to grow our portfolio. The whole concept of maximizing our tax savings and trying to get a loan is it seems to always be at odds with each other. On one hand, we want to write off as much as possible. On the other hand, we want to show the bank we made a ton of money and super profitable. So what I typically tell clients that we're working with, if they are concerned about their ability to get a loan, the process is we, we prepare a tax return based on all of the legitimate tax deductions that you're able to claim. Right. That's the first mm-hmm. version of it. And when we're done, we have the client send it to their mortgage lender or broker. Then we say, okay, take a look at this. What does this look like? What type of loan can it get me? And if that works out to what the investor is looking for, great. If it doesn't work out, it's like, hey, I need a, a, a $600,000 loan and this is not going to get me there. Then what we want to know from the lender is what do you need to see? What is that bottom line number you need to see? Right. And then how do we get there? Different numbers in the tax return are treated differently for debt-to-income ratio purposes. So one of the biggest right. benefits of real estate of depreciation, home office, car expenses, retirement contributions, those are four large ones that save us a lot of taxes, but typically do not hurt your debt-to-income ratio because those expenses are either just paper losses or they are already factored into your debt-to-income ratio. For example, car, right? It's like the, the lender already knows what your car payment is. They've already factored it in. So the fact that we are writing out part of that car on our tax return 
should not be counted against us a second time, right? You already knew what that was, so we're not counting that. And so it's a matter of just kind of going through that exercise and figuring out what are the things I must give up and what are the things I don't have to give up that will give me the tax savings and also still allow me to get the best loan uh, terms possible. Right. I love that you said that. Just from like an anecdotal experience to kind of back that up, when my husband and I first started investing in real estate, I had a W-2, right? And my husband worked in the service industry. He was a bartender. So he was on tip. So he always owed. I always got money back. He hated it every single year, right? And that was always something that he was always looking for those tax deductions. But when we first started investing, we had to show the most amount of income from him because that's what was helping us be able to get those loans. So to be honest, he kind of had to suck up paying maybe a few thousand dollars extra over five years to get millions of dollars worth of assets. So honestly, sometimes we have to be able to see a little bit of that longer strategy. Also, yeah. I've had accountants during our tax planning sessions, and he, my husband hates this as well. He really does not enjoy going to the accountant with me. Our accountant will ask us every single year, like, hey, are you planning on buying real estate this year? And Amanda, just so you're aware, I have told our accountant the past three years in a row, no, I don't plan on buying property. And then I've bought multiple properties later that year. But that's always a question. I love when our accountant will ask us that because then that way she can take that into consideration. Back in 2019, we actually, right in May, we were closing on like four different properties that were coming up. And we actually at a point had to put, we were in our accountant's office and actually put our mortgage lender on speakerphone with our accountant to make sure that everybody was happy with what our plan looked like. Everybody agreed that my husband took out his phone. He called our financial advisor. We needed to make sure that everybody was really on the same page with how yeah. we were presenting our taxes, what tax deductions we were taking. Because as real estate investors and also from a track strategy, we usually have to be thinking a little bit into the future to be able to make sure that we're making the right moves. So I love yeah. that you said that that was a great idea that for you, maybe you don't do three-way speakerphone calls and conference calls during session, but to at least kind of reach out and connect with the other team members of an investor to say, hey, this is what we're looking at for this past year. How is that going to make an impact with this investor's growth? So I think that's really important. I love that you do that, Amanda, to really start thinking ahead for your investor clients. Yeah, and I think whenever possible, we always try to take a team of advisors approach to get the client out of being the translator, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what, what do you need as a lender? What do I need as a CPA? What does the attorney need to see? And then we just kind of correspond together, whether it's using, you know, a joint three-way call or a conference call or just even a joint email, right? If it's hard to coordinate right. schedules. But that way we're all on the same team. We all understand what each other is saying. And I think clients love that too, right? So they're not just like, okay, Amanda, the attorney said this. And I'm like, no, I don't think he said that. Yes, you know, go back to him. I'm pretty sure nobody will say that. It just makes it easier and more efficient on everyone. And listen, games of telephone did not work when we were kids. They should definitely not be working in adult financial decisions. The, <laughs> I have two more questions for you. The one question, once again, very high level because we could totally go down a rabbit hole. We're not going to do that here. But one of the other goals of our lady landlords, for many of our lady landlords, 
is to leave that nine to five job, leave their W-2s. So we tend to get a lot of questions on filing as a real estate professional. Amanda, what the hell is that? How do I qualify and why does it even help me? Sure. Yeah. So real estate professional, probably something we can talk for eight hours about just right. this topic and the nuances of it. But at a high level in the tax world, if your income is over $150,000 as a married couple and also single too, what happens is your rental losses are considered passive losses, which means that they only offset taxes from other passive income. So in other words, I have depreciation, I have expenses. If I created the overall loss on my rental properties collectively, then that loss does not offset taxes from my W-2 income. It just carries forward and I can use it to offset taxes from future real estate income. So whether I have cash flow or if I sell a property for a gain, now I use that loss from previous years to offset that. So the downside, then, of course, people are like, hey, I have all these losses, but I'm still paying a ton of taxes in my W-2. What do I do about it? And that's where real estate professional status comes in. So if you or your spouse is a real estate professional, now the rules are different. As a real estate professional, your rental losses can offset taxes from all of your different types of income, which includes W-2, retirement distribution, stock gains, and all that. So when you hear people say, oh, no, we made $300,000 last year, we paid no taxes, odds are one of them is a real estate professional. So Amazing. I think the natural question then is like, what is a real estate professional? And contrary to popular belief, it's, it has nothing to do with licensing. So you don't have to be licensed as a realtor. You don't have to be a broker. You don't have to show houses on the weekend. It has nothing to do with licensing, but it does have everything to do with what you do in real estate and how many hours you're spending in real estate. So the three major rules that you have to meet to be a real estate professional is one, you have to spend at least 750 hours in real estate activities. And two, which is the hardest one for most people to meet, is you have to have more hours in real estate than your non-real estate activities. So that would be like your job or your business. We have to see how many hours are you spending in those things and you have to have more than those hours in real estate, which is where like, hey, if somebody is working a full-time job at 2,000 hours a year, it's almost impossible to have more than 2,000 hours in real estate. And then the third one is you have to meet material participation hours, which is kind of a convoluted set, but the way to look at it is you have to have hands-on hours with respect to your property. So once you or your spouse meets all three of those criteria, then you can be a real estate professional and that kind of like that golden spot to be because now your rental losses can offset all types of income. Right. And in that space, even qualifying as that real estate professional with one fan is not attached to being licensed. So you don't have to be a realtor. We can do that as real estate investors there are still loan options for us, right? There's so many real estate investors and lady landlords that worry if they leave tonight, that nine to five, that then they can't, they can't purchase properties because they can't get loans without the W-2. And that is so not the case. So this would absolutely help being able to qualify as a real estate professional to once again, be able to pay less taxes, keep more income in your pocket, then be able and be a great candidate for some of those loan opportunities. So Amanda, thank you for giving me some very simple Clarity kind of that. The last question I had for you on this is let's get down to brass tacks. What should I, and maybe it might be different as kind of that one to three properties versus those that have 10 plus properties, but what should I expect to be paying a CPA 
that specializes in real estate to do my taxes every year? Oh, man, that's a really tough one because that depends on so many things, right? It depends on right. where you are, where you're investing. So if I have three properties all in the same state where I live in, that will likely be cheaper than if I have two properties that are outside of the state I live in. Because every state that you have rental properties, if there are state income taxes there, you're going to have to have a filing requirement. And also that it comes down to the difference of the caliber of the firm you're working with, right? So if you're going to a place like H&R Block, I think you can get it done for a couple hundred dollars. If you go with a mid-size CPA firm, you could be looking at five, $6,000 for one tax return. So what I typically tell people is everything we do in real estate, because real estate is a business, right? So right. everything we, we think about, it is a cost-benefit analysis. So the question becomes, how much can I afford? What's my budget for hiring someone with that expertise? And you just want to get the best that you can afford at that point in time. So if you're a brand new investor, you just have enough money for your first deal. It is not super important to hire the best CPA, right? Because you want that money for the first deal or right. repairs and all that stuff. But if you have the money to do it, you have a lot of net worth to protect, you're ready to scale. Then you want to get the best you can afford because if you don't and that you're scaling quickly, Oftentimes, if you do something wrong on the tax return, you cannot fix it or it becomes very costly to fix. So you want to try mm -hmm. to avoid that by saving a couple hundred dollars from not hiring the best that you can afford. Agreed. I feel like I see that very, very often is that idea of skipping on pennies when really there were so many opportunities and there's so much you can do within real estate investing to change your financial future, that these are things that we really do need to invest in. Tax strategists, attorneys, protecting our assets. Those are all things that we should not be really just going with skipping on, on making sure that we're spending money on those costs. So, Amanda, I'm really happy that we were also able to address that to find, yes, somebody that works within your budget. But it's really important to make sure that we are finding the right people to be able to support us on this journey and the right people for our teams as we grow and we scale. So Amanda, thank you. I've thrown a lot of questions at you. We covered so many topics. Thank you so much for your time and breaking those things down into such easy, digestible pieces and steps. So thank you very much for being here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. I am going to link all of Amanda's social media, her contact information down in the show notes so regardless if you are watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the podcast, please do make sure to go follow Amanda, reach out to her and ask what questions you have and use her also for your tax planning. So Amanda, thank you very much for being here tonight. Ladies, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. And if you enjoyed today's episode, which I know you absolutely love, please make sure to leave a five-star review and let us know how much you enjoyed tonight's episode. This will help other lady landlords be able to find us and also get the support that they need in growing their real estate portfolios. Thank you so much again. And I will see you next week on Tuesday for the next episode of the Lady Landlords Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Lady Landlords Podcast. If you're feeling stuck in your real estate investing journey, visit lady-landlord.com to book a 15-minute orientation call with me and see if you're ready to join our mentorship program. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter and join our Facebook group for exclusive real estate investing tips and offers. 
Invest with confidence. Become a Lady Landlord today.